Chapter 19 of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Danielle Mortimer. Vanished Arizona. Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays. Chapter 19. Summer at Ehrenberg. The week we spent going up the Colorado in June was not as uncomfortable as the time spent on the river in August of the previous year. Everything is relative, I discovered, and I was happy in going back to stay with the first lieutenant of C Company, and share his fortunes a while longer. Petrochina recovered, as soon as she found we were to return to Ehrenberg. I wondered how anybody could be so homesick for such a godforsaken place. I asked her if she had ever seen a tree, or green grass, for I could talk with her quite easily now. She shook her mournful head. But don't you want to see trees and grass and flowers? Another sad shake of the head was the only reply. Such people, such natures, and such lives were incomprehensible to me then. I could not look on things except from my own standpoint. She took her child upon her knee and lighted a cigarette. I took mine upon my knee and gazed at the river banks. They were now old friends. I had gazed at them many times before. How much I had experienced— and how much had happened since I first saw them. Could it be that I should ever come to love them, and the pungent smell of the arrowweed which covered them to the water's edge? The huge mosquitoes swarmed over us in the nights from those thick clumps of arrowweed and willow, and the nets with which Captain Mellon provided us did not afford much protection. The June heat was bad enough, though not quite so stifling as the August heat. I was becoming accustomed to climates, and had learned to endure discomfort. The salt beef and the Chinaman's peach pies were no longer offensive to me. Indeed, I had a good appetite for them, though they were not exactly the sort of food prescribed by the modern doctor for a young mother. Of course, milk, eggs, and all fresh food were not to be had on the river boats. Ice was still a thing unknown on the Colorado. When, after a week, the Gila pushed her nose up to the bank at Ehrenberg, there stood the quartermaster. He jumped aboard, and did not seem in the least surprised to see me. I knew you'd come back, said he. I laughed, of course, and we both laughed. I hadn't the courage to go on, I replied. Oh, well, we can make things comfortable here and get through the summer some way, he said. I'll build some rooms on, and a kitchen, and we can surely get along. It's the healthiest place in the world for children, they tell me. So after a hearty handshake with Captain Mellon, who had taken such good care of me on my week's voyage upriver, I being almost the only passenger— I put my foot once more on the shores of old Ehrenberg, and we wended our way towards the blank white walls of the government house. I was glad to be back, and content to wait. So work was begun immediately on the kitchen. My first stipulation was that the new rooms were to have wooden floors, for, although the Cocopa Charlie kept the adobe floors in perfect condition, by sprinkling them down and sweeping them out every morning, they were quite impossible, especially where it concerned white dresses and children and the little sharp rocks in them seemed to be so tiring to the feet. Life as we Americans live it was difficult in Ehrenberg. I often said, Oh, if only we could live as the Mexicans live, how easy it would be. For they had their fire built between some stones piled up in their yard, a piece of sheet iron laid over the top. This was the cooking stove. A pot of coffee was made in the morning early, and the family sat on the low porch and drank it, and ate a biscuit. Then a kettle of frijoles, was put over to boil. These were boiled slowly for some hours. Then lard and salt were added, 
and they simmered down until they were deliciously fit to eat, and had a thick red gravy. Then the young matron, or daughter of the house, would mix the peculiar paste of flour and salt and water for tortillas, a species of unleavened bread. These tortillas were patted out until they were as large as a dinner plate and very thin, then thrown onto the hot sheet-iron where they baked. Each one of the family then got a tortilla, the spoonful of beans was laid upon it, and so they managed without the paraphernalia of silver and china and napery. How I envied them the simplicity of their lives! Besides, the tortillas were delicious to eat, and as for the frijoles, they were beyond anything I had ever eaten in the shape of beans. I took lessons in the making of tortillas. A woman was paid to come and teach me, but I never mastered the art. It is in the blood of the Mexican, and a girl begins at a very early age to make the tortilla. It is the most graceful thing to see a pretty Mexican toss the wafer-like disc over her bare arm, and pat it out until transparent. This was their supper, for, like nearly all people in the tropics, they ate only twice a day. Their fare was varied sometimes by a little carne seca, pounded up and stewed with chili verde or chili colorado. Now if you could hear the soft, exquisite, affectionate drawl with which the Mexican woman says chili verde, you could perhaps come to realize what an important part the delicious green pepper plays in the cookery of these countries. They do not use it in its raw state, but generally roast it whole, stripping off the thin skin and throwing away the seeds, leaving only the pulp, which acquires a fine flavor by having been roasted or toasted over the hot coals. The women were scrupulously clean and modest, and always wore, when in their casa, a low-necked and short-sleeved white linen camisa, fitting neatly, with bands around neck and arms. Over this they wore a calico skirt, always white stockings and black slippers. When they ventured out, the younger women put on muslin gowns and carried parasols. The older women wore a linen towel thrown over their heads, or, in cool weather, the black riboso. I often cried, oh, if I could only dress as the Mexicans do. Their necks and arms do look so cool and clean. I have always been sorry I did not adopt their fashion of house apparel. Instead of that, I yielded to the prejudices of my conservative partner, and sweltered during the day in high-necked and long-sleeved white dresses, kept up the table in American fashion, ate American food in so far as we could get it, and all at the expense of strength, for our soldier cooks, who were loaned us by Captain Ernest from his company at Fort Yuma, were constantly being changed, and I was often left with the Indian and the indolent Patrocina. At those times, how I wished I had no silver, no table linen, no china, and could revert to the primitive customs of my neighbors. There was no market, but occasionally a Mexican killed a steer, and we bought enough for one meal. But having no ice, and no place away from the terrific heat, the meat was hung out under the ramada with a piece of netting over it, until the first heat had passed out of it, and then it was cooked. The Mexican, after selling what meat he could, cut the rest into thin strips, and hung it up on ropes to dry in the sun. It dried hard and brittle in its natural state, so pure is the air on that wonderful river bank. They called this carne seca, and the Americans called it jerked beef. Petrochina often prepared me a dish of this, when I was unable to taste the fresh meat. She would pound it fine with a heavy pestle, and then put it to simmer, seasoning it with the green or red pepper. It was most savory. There was no butter at all during the hot months, but our hens laid a few eggs, and the quartermaster was allowed to keep a small lot of commissary stores, from which we drew our supplies of flour, ham, and canned things. We were often without milk for weeks at a time, 
for the cows crossed the river to graze, and sometimes could not get back until the river fell again, and they could pick their way back across the shifting sandbars. The Indian brought the water every morning in buckets from the river. It looked like melted chocolate. He filled the barrels, and when it had settled clear, the olas were filled, and thus the drinking water was a trifle cooler than the air. One day it seemed unusually cool, so I said, let us see by the thermometer how cool the water really is. We found the temperature of the water to be 86 degrees, but that, with the air at 122 in the shade, seemed quite refreshing to drink. I did not see any white people at all except Fisher, Abe Frank, the mail contractor, and one or two of the younger merchants. If I wanted anything, I went to Fisher. He always could solve the difficulty. He procured for me an excellent middle-aged laundress, who came and brought the linen herself, and bowing to the floor, said always, Buenos dias, senorita, dwelling on the latter word as a gentle compliment to a younger woman, and then, mucho calor este dia, in her low, drawling voice. Like the others, she was spotlessly clean, modest, and gentle. I asked her what on earth they did about bathing, for I had found the tub-baths with the muddy water so disagreeable. She told me the women bathed in the river at daybreak, and asked me if I would like to go with them. I was only too glad to avail myself of her invitation, and so, like Pharaoh's daughter of old, I went with my gentle handmaiden every morning to the river-bank, and wading in about knee-deep in the thick red waters, we sat down and let the swift current flow by us. We dared not go deeper. We could feel the round stones grinding against each other as they were carried down, and we were all afraid. It was difficult to keep one's foothold, and Captain Mellon's words were ever ringing in my ears. He who disappears below the surface of the Colorado is never seen again. But we joined hands and ventured like children, and played like children in those red waters, and after all it was much nicer than a tub of muddy water indoors. A clump of low mesquite trees at the top of the bank afforded sufficient protection at that hour. We rubbed dry, slipped on a loose gown, and wended our way home. What a contrast to the limpid, bracing salt waters of my own beloved shores! When I thought of them I was seized with a longing which consumed me and made my heart sick, and I thought of these poor people, who had never known anything in their lives but those desert places, and that muddy red water, and wondered what they would do, how they would act, if transported into some beautiful forest, or to the cool bright shores where clear blue waters invite to a plunge. Whenever the river boat came up we were sure to have guests, for many officers went into the territory via Ehrenberg. Sometimes the transportation was awaiting them. At other times they were obliged to wait at Ehrenberg until it arrived. They usually lived on the boat, as we had no extra rooms, but I generally asked them to luncheon or supper, for anything that could be called a dinner was out of the question. This caused me some anxiety, as there was nothing to be had, but I remembered the hospitality I had received, and thought of what they had been obliged to eat on the voyage, and I always asked them to share what we could provide, however simple it might be. At such times we heard all the news from Washington and the States, and all about the fashions, and they, in their turn, asked me all sorts of questions about Ehrenberg, and how I managed to endure the life. They were always astonished when the Cocopa Indian waited on them at table, for he wore nothing but his g-string, and although it was an everyday matter to us, it rather took their breath away. But Charlie appealed to my aesthetic sense in every way. Tall and well-made, with clean-cut limbs and features, fine smooth copper-coloured skin, handsome face, heavy black hair done up in pompadour fashion, and plastered with Colorado mud, which was baked white by the sun, 
a small feather at the crown of his head, wide turquoise bead bracelets upon his upper arm, and a knife at his waist. This was my Charlie, my half-tame Cocopa, my man about the place, my butler, in fact, for Charlie understood how to open a bottle of Cocomonga gracefully, and to keep the glasses filled. Charlie also wheeled the baby out along the river banks, for we had had a fine perambulator sent down from San Francisco. It was an incongruous sight, to be sure, and one must laugh to think of it. The Ehrenberg babies did not have carriages, and the village flocked to see it. There sat the fair-haired six-months-old boy, with but one linen garment on, no cap, no stockings, and this wild man of the desert, his knife gleaming at his waist, and his g-string floating out behind, wheeling and pushing the carriage along the sandy roads. But this came to an end, for one day Fisher rushed in, breathless, and said, "'Well, here is your baby. I was just in time, for that engine of yours left the carriage in the middle of the street to look in at the store window, and a herd of wild cattle came tearing down. I grabbed the carriage to the sidewalk, cussed the engine out, and here's the child. It's no use,' he added." You can't trust those engines out of sight. The heat was terrific. Our cots were placed in the open part of the corral, as our courtyard was always called. It was a desolate-looking place. On one side the high adobe wall, on another the freight house, and on the other two our apartments. Our kitchen and the two other rooms were now completed. The kitchen had no windows, only open spaces to admit the air and light, and we were often startled in the night by the noise of thieves in the house, rummaging for food. At such times our soldier cook would rush into the corral with his rifle, the lieutenant would jump up and seize his shotgun, which always stood nearby, and together they would roam through the house. But the thieving Indians could jump out of the windows as easily as they jumped in, and the excitement would soon be over. The violent sandstorms which prevail in those deserts sometimes came in, up in the night, without warning. Then we rushed half-suffocated and blinded into the house, and as soon as we had closed the windows it had passed on leaving a deep layer of sand on everything in the room, and on our perspiring bodies. Then came the work, next day, for the Indian had to carry everything out of doors, and one storm was so bad that he had to use a shovel to remove the sand from the floors. The desert literally blew into the house. And now we saw a singular phenomenon. In the late afternoon of each day a hot steam would collect over the face of the river, then slowly rise and floating over the length and breadth of this wretched hamlet of Arenberg, descend upon and envelop us. Thus we wilted and perspired, and had one part of the vapour-bath without its bracing concomitant of the cool shower. In half an hour it was gone, but always left me prostrate. Then Jack gave me milk-punch, if milk was at hand, or sherry and egg, or something to bring me up to normal again. We got to dread the steam so, it was the climax of the long, hot day, and was peculiar to that part of the river. The paraphernalia by the side of our cots at night consisted of a pitcher of cold tea, a lantern, matches, a revolver, and a shotgun. Enormous yellow cats, which lived in and around the freight house, darted to and fro inside and outside the house, along the ceiling beams, emitting loud cries, and that alone was enough to prevent sleep. In the old part of the house some of the partitions did not run up to the roof, but were left open for ventilation, I suppose, thus making a fine playground for cats and rats, which darted along, squeaking, meowing, and clattering all through the night. An uncanny feeling of insecurity was ever with me. What with the accumulated effect of the day's heat, what with the thieving Indians, the sandstorms, and the cats, our nights by no means gave us the refreshment needed by our worn-out systems. 
By the latter part of the summer I was so exhausted by the heat and the various difficulties of living that I had become a mere shadow of my former self. Men and children seem to thrive in those climates, but it is death to women, as I had often heard. It was in the late summer that the boat arrived one day, bringing a large number of staff officers and their wives, head clerks, and general service men for Fort Whipple. They had all been stationed in Washington for a number of years, having had what is known in the Army as gilt-edged details. I threw a linen towel over my head and went to the boat to call on them, and, remembering my voyage from San Francisco the year before, prepared to sympathize with them. But they had met their fate with resignation, knowing they should find a good climate and a pleasant post up in the mountains, and as they had no young children with them, they were disposed to make merry over their discomforts. We asked them to come to our quarters for supper, and to come early, as any place was cooler than the boat, lying down there in the melting sun, and nothing to look upon but those hot, zinc-covered decks, or the ragged river-banks, with their uninviting huts scattered along the edge. The surroundings somehow did not fit these people. Now Mrs. Montgomery at Camp Apache seemed to have adapted herself to the rude setting of a log cabin in the mountains, but these were staff people, and they had enjoyed for years the civilized side of army life. Now they were determined to rough it, but they did not know how to begin. The beautiful wife of the adjutant-general was mourning over some freckles which had come to adorn her dazzling complexion, and she had put on a large hat with a veil. Was there ever anything so incongruous as a hat and veil in Ehrenberg? For a long time I had not seen a woman in a hat. The Mexicans all wore a linen towel over their heads. But her beauty was startling, and after all, I thought, a woman so handsome must try to live up to her reputation. Now for some weeks Jack had been investigating the sulphur well, which was beneath the old pump in our corral. He had had a long wooden bathtub built, and I watched it with a lazy interest, and observed his glee as he found a longshoreman or roustabout who could cock it. The shape was exactly like a coffin, but men have no imaginations, and when I told him how it made me feel to look at it, he said, "'Oh, you are always thinking of gloomy things. It's a fine tub, and we are mighty lucky to find that man to cock it. I'm going to set it up in the little square room, and lead the sulphur water into it, and it will be splendid. And just think,' he added, "'what it will do for rheumatism.'" Now Jack had served in the 20th Massachusetts Volunteers during the Civil War, and the swamps of the Chickahominy had brought him into close acquaintance with that dread disease. As for myself, rheumatism was about the only ailment I did not have at that time, and I suppose I did not really sympathize with him. But this energetic and indomitable man mended the pump, with Fisher's help, and led the water into the house, laid a floor, set up the tub in the little square room, and behold, our sulphur bath. After much persuasion I tried the bath. The water flowed thick and inky black into the tub. Of course the odor was beyond description, and the effect upon me was not such that I was ever willing to try it again. Jack beamed. How do you like it, Martha? said he. Isn't it fine? Why, people travel hundreds of miles to get a bath like that. I had my own opinion, but I did not wish to dampen his enthusiasm. Still, in order to protect myself in the future, I had to tell him I thought I should ordinarily prefer the river. Well, he said, there are those who will be thankful to have a bath in that water. I am going to use it every day. I remonstrated. How do you know what is in that inky water, and how do you dare to use it? Oh, Fisher says it's all right. People here used to drink it years ago, but they have not done so lately, because the pump was broken down. The Washington people seemed glad to pay us the visit. Jack's eyes danced with true generosity and glee. He marked his victim, and selecting the staff beauty and the paymaster's wife, he expatiated on the wonderful properties of his sulphur bath. 
Why, yes, the sooner the better, said Mrs. Martin. I'd give everything I have in this world, and all my chances for the next, to get a tub bath. It will be so refreshing just before supper, said Mrs. Maynadier, who was more conservative. So the Indian, who had put on his dark blue waistband, or sash, made from flannel, reveled out and twisted into strands of yarn, and which showed the supple muscles of his clean-cut thighs, and who had done up an extra-high pompadour in white clay, and burnished his knife, which gleamed at his waist, ushered these Washington women into a small apartment adjoining the bathroom, and turned on the inky stream into the sarcophagus. The staff beauty looked at the black pool and shuddered. "'Do you use it?' said she. "'Occasionally,' I equivocated. "'Does it hurt the complexion?' she ventured. "'Jack thinks it excellent for that,' I replied. And then I left them, directing Charlie to wait and prepare the bath for the second victim. By and by the beauty came out. "'Where is your mirror?' cried she. For our appointments were primitive, and mirrors did not grow on bushes at Ehrenberg. "'I fancy I look queer,' she added. And in truth she did, for our water of the sticks did not seem to affiliate with the chemical properties of the numerous cosmetics used by her, more or less, all her life, but especially on the voyage, and her face had taken on a queer color, with peculiar spots here and there. Fortunately my mirrors were neither large nor true, and she never really saw how she looked, but when she came back into the living room she laughed and said to Jack, What kind of water did you say that was? I never saw any just like it. "'Oh, you have probably never been much to the sulphur springs,' said he, with his most superior and crushing manner. "'Perhaps not,' she replied. "'But I thought I knew something about it. Why, my entire body turned such a queer colour.' "'Oh, it always does that,' said this optimistic soldier-man. "'And that shows it is doing good.' The paymaster's wife joined us later. I think she had profited by the beauty's experience, for she said but little. The quartermaster was happy. And what if his wife did not behave in that uncanny stream which flowed somewhere from out the infernal regions underlying that wretched hamlet? He had succeeded in being a benefactor to two travellers at least. We had a merry supper, cold ham, chicken, and fresh biscuit, a plenty of good cocomongo wine, sweet milk, which to be sure turned to curds as it stood on the table, some sort of preserves from a tin, and good coffee. I gave them the best to be had in the desert and at all events it was a change from the Chinamen's salt beef and peach pies, and they saw fresh table linen and shining silver, and accepted our simple hospitality in the spirit in which we gave it. Alice Martin was much amused over Charlie, and Charlie could do nothing but gaze on her lovely features. "'Why on earth don't you put some clothes on him?' laughed she, in her delightful way. I explained to her that the Indian's fashion of wearing white men's clothes was not pleasing to the eye, and told her that she must cultivate her aesthetic sense— and in a short time she would be able to admire these copper-coloured creatures of nature as much as I did. But I feared that a life spent mostly in a large city had cast fetters around her imagination, and that the life at Fort Whipple afterwards savoured too much of civilization to loosen the bonds of her soul. I saw her many times again, but she never recovered from her amazement at Charlie's lack of apparel, and she never forgot the sulphur bath. End of chapter 19